Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Punch, Kick, Choke, Chat. We are back. My name is Sean Benson. I'm one of your hosts, and I just want to say thank you so much for your patience. I know some of you messaged me and some of us asking where we were for the last couple of weeks, and everybody's been really patient because I had to work in a way that I couldn't be here on Thursday nights. And what I love so much about our team is that while we have some offshoot programming, this episode, we want all four of us hosts here. So it's a really beautiful thing to be supported that way. And then we can support our guests that way with the full team being here. So we're really glad that we're back and we're really glad that you're with us, whether you're watching us live stream on YouTube, whether you're watching us later on YouTube, whether you're listening to this as a podcast, uh, or if you're here with us on Zoom tonight. So, so thanks for being back. Thanks for hanging in. And uh, we're super excited about tonight and our next two weeks. Um, every week I get to introduce Sensei Nicholas Suino, and all I can tell you, aside from the fact that he is an eighth Dan in Iaido, a sixth Dan in Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, a sixth Dan in Judo, is that we're going to get to see each other relatively soon. Sensei Suino, how are you doing tonight? Yeah, great to see you. I cannot wait till either you can come down here or I can come up there. Uh, that will happen soon. We'll be able to train yeah. together. Yeah. That is Awesome. Uh, falls to me each and every week to introduce Sensei Randy Dolphin. As uh, many of you know, he's a seventh don in karate, fourth don in Iaido. He's Hanchi Legacy's karate student and White Crane, uh, my student in Iaido, uh, accomplished martial artist in many respects. Randy, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing really good, uh, Sensei Suno. Thank you. And for me personally, I get to introduce Sensei Legacy and Sensei Jones. And since Legacy is a 10th then, he was awarded that rank by his teacher, Anthony Sandoval. Uh, like Sensei Jones, he's actually a member of the Canadian Black Belt Hall of Fame. They were actually inducted on the same, same night. Um, they're actually all, actually Sensei Suino, Sensei Legacy, and Sensei Jones are all authors. Um, Sensei Legacy has also been a student of Harold Warden and Benny Allen and Richard Kim. And he's also a student of Sensei Suino's. He has a Black Belt ranking in Iaido. Um, and I know I said I wasn't going to go on too much, but one of the things I just want to say to everybody is that uh, while Sensei Legacy and Sensei Suino have always watched me through the years, through the last 30 years, I got to say it's a real privilege to be able to watch them evolve as teachers as well. I've been able to watch them for the last 32 years, change their game and become much better instructors. Not that they weren't great in the beginning, but they're definitely better now 32 years later than they were 32 years ago uh, when I started training with them. So that's thank you to both of you for continuing to evolve and be great teachers. Um, and now I'm going to introduce uh, Sensei Brad Jones, who I'm super excited to get into this conversation with. Uh, Sensei Jones is a sixth N in JKA Shotokan Karate. Um, he's a multi-time national Canadian karate champion. He's a member of the World Martial Arts Hall of Fame. And as I said, uh, member of the Canadian Black Belt Hall of Fame. He was the head coach of the Canadian National Karate Team from 1994 to 1999. He's been the president of the uh, Karate Ontario. He has represented Ontario nine consecutive times at the National Black Belt Championships. He has competed internationally in Egypt, Venezuela. Sensei Jones, we didn't talk about it. I competed in Venezuela once too, so we should talk about that sometime. We share that same... Same country competition. He's competed in San Francisco and he's also competed in Japan. Uh, this is one of the things that I, when I was doing some research that I really liked. Um, he's trained with some of the greatest masters in karate history. Uh, he's a direct student of Masumi Soroka, Sensei Soroka. 
who everybody in Canada knows and everybody in the world, quite frankly. But also he's trained with um, uh, Sensei Chitosi, right? He, he trained with Sensei Chitosi and also um, Sensei Nakayama. And if you don't know who Nakayama Sensei is, uh, you know, I have that saying, you should go throw yourself off a bridge or something. Like if you're in karate <laughs> and you don't know who Nakayama Sensei is, you got some serious reading to do. Um, you know, Nakayama Sensei was, if not Funakoshi's greatest student, I, I think he was. Like, I, I just feel like he probably was Funakoshi's greatest student. Um, and then I like to give a couple of thoughts, Sensei Jones, on my own. Of uh, I remember the first time I actually met you, and it was after you were inducted in the Canadian Black Belt Hall of Fame, and we were standing in the lobby of the hotel in Hull. And uh, you were inducted with both Sensei Legacy and Sensei Bill Hines. And, you know, Sensei Hines, rest in peace. Um, that's good company to be inducted in with. But I remember when I walked up to you, you just were very calm, you were very polite, and you're a very easy person to talk to. Like there was no like reluctance to approach you. So I thank you for that. Um, I know from our conversations, we've had five or six conversations now. Um, I feel that you're an honest person and I feel that you're a proud person and I feel that you have a reason to be proud. I feel like your commitment to karate and the things that you've done uh, you've earned the rank of being proud of what you've achieved and what you're doing for martial arts. Um, it's my opinion that Sensei Jones is committed to karate first. And if you don't think so, you just go look at his dojo. His dojo represents a level of commitment to karate that not a lot of people have. There'd be easier ways for Sensei Jones to teach karate that would benefit him. But when you go in his dojo, I said to him when we were talking, before I went in your dojo, Sensei Jones, J-Mac was the nicest dojo I'd ever been in. And now I don't know. Like, you two can get together and you can talk about it and you can decide who has the nicest dojo. But it, your dojo is beautiful and it represents your commitment to karate. Um, two training floors, many, many great uh, memorabilia, full training facility, change rooms, showers, just an incredible place. Um, and the last thing I want to say, Sensei Jones, is every single time I've talked to you, um, I've learned something and I've left thinking a little bit deeper, right? And as an example of that, the last time I talked to you, you said, no one ever joined my dojo because of my rank. And I just left and I thought, wow, that's like an incredible statement and a, a statement that not a lot of people um, would think about, especially not a lot of people like me, right, who... We're all proud of our ranks and our achievements, but that's not why people come here. So uh, that's my introduction for Sensei Jones. I'm extremely excited to chat with you tonight, Sensei, and thank you so much for coming on here. And I'm gonna turn it back to Sean for a minute here. Thanks, Sensei. I'm gonna do a little bit of housekeeping before we jump right in. First is we're sponsored tonight, and uh, this is something I wanna chat with you all about, which is you know tonight, Legacy Shore and Rue and Japanese Martial Arts Center are the sponsors of our show. Um, that might seem obvious in a way, but what we're doing is we're opening up the idea that if you have something to promote, if you want to get behind us and then we get behind you, let us know, send us a message and we can form those, um, you know, synchronous relationships and help each other all out. So, so tonight, those two uh, martial arts organizations are, are supporting and sponsoring the show. And then, um, sorry, I just got interrupted. Hold on. Sensei, Dofan, what's that you're wearing? Uh, oh, my snazzy t-shirt. Wow, that's a snazzy t-shirt. 
<laughs> I got totally interrupted on my train of thought because of your snazzy t-shirt. Where would one get such a t-shirt? I think Robert's going to slam it up in the, oh, and there it is. Hey, what do you know? Uh, we got some merch, everybody. And again, a lot of you have asked. And so we have answered there. There is a way to get some PKCC merch going on. Um, so check out the PKCC webpage for registrations and merch. Um, this brings me to my next point. You would see that if you're watching uh, live with us on the bottom in the chat button. Um, we want you to engage with this show. So first off, Robert will have shown you where to link to the uh, to the merchandise if you want to find any. For anybody not watching this live, it's LegacyMartialArtsAndFitness.com slash PKCC, Punch, Kick, Choke, Chat. And um, now getting back to the concept of our show tonight, if you're watching, uh, if you're new, we want you to be a part of this living history. We want you to chip in with your questions at the chat button at the bottom. And for everybody who's been here before, don't feel like you're asking too many questions if you've asked a bunch before. Uh, Robert just slammed that up as well. Please any your questions for Sensei Jones tonight. We're really excited to get to those. And then the last bit of housekeeping is you're listening to five adults have a conversation. There might be topics that you feel are inappropriate. There might be language you feel is inappropriate. And very simply, if that is the case, you should jump off the same bridge that people who don't know who Sensei Nakayama jump off of, and you can all hang out down there and you can go, how did we end up here? Because <laughs> you had an issue with the F word. You're going to be okay. So we're back to our show now, to our guest. Um, even in our preamble, I'm so excited for tonight's show. And if you've noticed, we've streamlined our intros because we want to spend more time with our guests. Um, Sensei Jones, how are you doing tonight? I'm okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm glad to be here. This is uh, wonderful. It's, uh, I've, I've never seen a podcast done this way live where questions can come in. Ah. Yeah. Right on. Yet yeah, I've never seen one either. And, and we're happy to sort of create the vibe. Um, so the first question that I tend to ask all our guests, what was it like growing up for you? What brought you into your first dojo and why'd you stay? Well, uh, <laughs> I'll keep it very short. I was eat. I was as tall as I am when I was about 13 years old, very gangly, uh, insecure. Uh, at 14 years old, the uh, dojo opened in town. That was 1969. Uh, I saw a poster on a telephone pole. I took it home. I said, Dad, I'm going to take up karate. He looked at me and says, oh, what do you want to do that crap for? He says, you're going to wreck your hands. You won't be able to play guitar anymore. Huh. So I did it out of spite. <laughs> and uh, I was the youngest guy there. It was um, kind of... Um, Earl Hughes um, was teaching there. And uh, anyway, he, he moved out west after that. It's something I found, uh, it helped me with uh, the insecurities of the time. Um, growing up in a smaller town, um, and well, everywhere was rougher back in those days. There was a lot more street fights and bar fights, that kind of thing. And it, anyway, it just drew me in. And I found it wasn't a team sport uh, where you're working with a team. It was you against you. What appealed to me the most was wherever you are, whatever you're going to achieve, it's you battling yourself to try and improve or, uh, or build something that's missing. And that's what appealed to me the most, I suppose. And uh, yeah, I was fortunate to start in the small town and then that closed. And then I had to uh, hitchhike down to north part of the city because uh, nobody would drive me and I didn't have a driver's license yet. And then uh, started training Richmond Hill, that closed down, I ended up hitching on uh, down to a place near York University. Samurai Karate Studio. I, some of you may have heard that name from the past. And then I started driving and um, 
connected with one of Sensei Soroka's students who was teaching in town through the town of Newmarket. And uh, then that's what connected me with Sensei Soroka. And I spent uh, a few days with him, and a few days here in town and inherited this, this school from him and back in 1976. Wow, so, so my, yep. Yeah. Well, am I hearing this right? From age 13 till 16, you were hitchhiking after your first school closed to various places, including getting your way down to Toronto because you were yeah. already bitten by enough of a bug. So what, yeah. what, what was it? Like, what makes a guy who's, I mean, I, you, you mentioned the confidence, but that's a very significant commitment for a young person to make when there's so many other draws in high school and so many other ways you could spend your evenings. Yeah, well, I was always one that um, if mainstream was going that way, I was going the other way. Um, I grew up pretty much in the woods. Uh, it was always either tracking, hunting, skinning animals, that kind of thing. Uh, kind of follow a native tradition in many ways. And the martial arts, to me, uh, there was a lot of similarities in a sense. Um, I guess uh, the draw was the, the mystique also, uh, especially around those times and the unknown. I think I picked up one of the first books on uh, karate ever written. Somebody found a copy of it years later uh, that, and gave, me, gave it to me. But I was in the basement trying to imitate these moves long before I even walked into a dojo. And there's something about it that I, I can't put a finger on exactly what it was, uh, but other things... I tried to play baseball, the ball would go over my head. And, oh, was I supposed to get that? Mm. I think I played hockey and scored my own net because I just, it just didn't grab me. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I can't really say other than I was drawn and uh, a fire was lit and I had to follow it as far as I could. So yeah. what, what, what would you consider to be the first settled, like this is my dojo now? Um, was it one of those first ones, or was it when you finally made your way to Sensei Soroka? It was more. It was never a dojo. It was the person, I suppose. Um, I was at a competition uh, as a brown belt, <clears throat> young brown belt, at uh, Hagashi's dojo, and Sensei Soroka was there. And I guess he saw something. And he came over and said, he, he gave me a membership card. He says, "Come to my dojo." So he showed up. So he took a card, wrote up, paid in full for a year, and he gave me the card. And he, I just went and just trained. And then I never paid ever for training there. And then uh, years later, I would teach for him a little bit. And when I would travel off to Japan, I would come back and uh, teach what I was taught. Uh, and I kept that affiliation. Sensei Soroka, <clears throat> over years, um, he, he evolved into his own style, I suppose. When I first said I wanted to go to Japan, he first of all said get a haircut. <clears throat> then secondly, he turned up the heat in the dojo and uh, used the shinai relentlessly. Um, he used it anyway, but he turned up the, the heat a little bit. <laughs> it was a little more torturous. But I'm glad he did because he did prepare me. Um, but I first went to his teacher, uh, Chitose Sensei. Mm -hmm. And when I got to Chitosi's home and the dojo was in the backyard. This was in uh, Kyushu, Kumamoto uh, in Kyushu. Uh, the training I had been doing, we were practicing kata that were uh, Chitoryu kata, but he had already adopted uh, some of the training methodology of uh, Shotokan because there had been other instructors like Nakayama even who had come over and other instructors who had come from the JKA and, and started, and they were very successful in competition. So he started looking at what they were doing and taking some of their methodology and incorporating it. So when I got to Chitosi's home and we were practicing kata, they were all inside tension stances. 
And I was used to doing longs and kutsudashi, kokutsudashi, long and deep stances. Um, so after two weeks of training, I couldn't walk properly. My muscles were so sore uh, because they'd never been used that way consistently. Huh. And, and also the dojo floor was a ground. So it was a dirt floor. So at the end of class, you had these straw brooms you had to sweep uh, to, to level it out again. But it was like sandpaper. So uh, even though I had you know, reasonably hard feet from training, not on sandpaper. Right. <laughs> it would take um, the skin right off. So, so I realized yep. I realized at that time that Sensu Soroka had started to go in a different direction or evolve into his own. And I mm -hmm. knew um, I knew within six months of starting to train that this was going to be my life. Mm -hmm. So I also knew that I need to be part of a an organization that has a standard that, that's worldwide, that's consistent, that's well documented, and so on. Uh, so after training with uh, sense, uh, Chitose Sensei for a few months, I traveled to Tokyo because uh, I was also um, advised I should visit the JK headquarters. So I did and ended up in, living in Nakayama's dojo. When I walked in there and started training, um, after having been uh, getting the fright of my life by some of those instructors and the stories that were flying everywhere about a couple of Yahara Sensei throwing somebody out of the second floor window and on and on and on and on. It was a real blood and guts time. But uh, I realized right away, oh, this is what I've been doing. So from that point on, I would I stayed affiliated with Sensei Soroka for all many years after that, uh, but would come back and and uh, impart what I had picked up to him and his dojo and others, and then would teach for him so, mm. from time to time. But I, I sort of I realized that I want to follow a line that's not going to be changing next week or. Uh, uh, I got a little bit tired of this, you know, this week it's this, this week it's that. Um, and from traveling, um, I've traveled many, many countries and I walk into any JK dojo and it's exactly the same. Uh, and I like that. I like the consistency. Well, so I want to break this open idea a little. Hanshi Legacy, I want to throw this to you and talk about that idea of, you know, you had to do something a bit similar to what Soroka did, which is you're getting information and you're creating a style that doesn't necessarily look exactly like any one style you were taught. And so my question is, when does a martial artist go, no, I don't like that change or go, this is the change that needs to happen? Are you asking me? I am, yeah. Yeah, well, <clears throat> it's, again, it's, it's like shore and rue is shore and rue, but uh, sometimes take, people take different angles on it. Uh, and in that way, if that's, you know, like karate do or karate jitsu, uh, jitsu is more of a brutal form of karate than karate do, right? So there are certain necessities that require it. Just like if something becomes, you're hanging on to it just for the sake of hanging on to it. Um, in my opinion, you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. It's very much like if you, and I've mentioned this many times because we're Canadians. Hockey has changed greatly since 1900. If you put uh, McDavid on an ice rink with the players from 1905, he would probably score 40 or 50 goals a day or a, a game. So uh, I personally find that the person who've trained for that long time and realize... Um, the value of what 
they have learned or the value of their ideas. For instance, uh, you can have a nice samurai sword, but after a while it gets worn. And But not a fool, but a, uh, a professional sword maker needs to make those changes. He's the only one who can. Right. So that's how sort of I look at that. And even after ourselves, things probably in the future will change. That's, that's the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Hanchi. And Sensei Suino, what about you? Do you find that your, your you know, lineage through sword and through your judo and jujitsu are relatively like what you were doing under your teacher's tutelage or have you been adapting it as well? That's a well, good question. I want to add to that before Sensei Suino answers because I'm curious to know, I've trained with you enough since you know that, like, for example, there's certain cuts that I do that you say, this is the way Yamaguchi Sensei did it. And this is the way that it's done now. And I know like a couple of ways to do a cut. Yeah. Um, I think I've mentioned this on this show is that, uh, I don't know, it's been, it's been 10 or 12 years, but at one point I just decided I was going to carefully examine everything I was taught and decide for myself, what was dogma and what really made sense. Um, I think I had the most incredible Yaido teacher on the planet. Uh, so I went into that with a lot of respect. Um, and I have to say, you know, when I got, when I got through it, I think 85% of what I was taught was absolutely solid. Um, and the other 15% I changed partly because I, I think sometimes tradition uh, 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 mandates things that are not necessarily effective or practical. And the other stuff uh, I, I teach in, I, I guess, a simplified way. Um, and I say this all the time, everybody, you know, here's a new move. The first 8,000 times are the hardest. Right. right on. Thanks for that. And then Sensei Dauphin, I know that, you know, when the names Chitosi and Akayama come up, that I could see you just writing down and getting excited. So I want to just throw it to you to ask, ask some questions to Sensei Jones around that. Yeah, I guess uh, one of the things I... I put down here, Sensei Jones was, could you give out a couple of standing characteristics that really resonated with you uh, for Sensei Chitosi, Sensei Soroka, Sensei Nakayama? What are some of the things about those three names that stand out for you as people, right? Like, Yeah. Um, well, they're always uh, quite humble, uh, first of all. Chitosi Sensei, um, I can't say we had conversations because I had uh, virtually no Japanese at all. And his son, his son-in-law actually um, would translate for me. His son-in-law had lived in the U.S. for some time and was relatively good with English. So it was all kind of through him, but just observing him, he was, he was 86 at the time, um, but he was still moving around quite well. His son, Yasuhiro, took over um, later in life. Uh, and he was a family man. He had uh, five daughters, I think. Anyway, several daughters, uh, but a fairly simple guy from what I could see. Um, Sensei Soroka, he was uh, just one, like I have never met anybody who could push somebody past what they thought they could do. He had ways of tricking you. Like we'd be just dying. He had his dojo on the was it Davenport upper floor above a car place and it was hot as hell in the summer you have the windows open but you're dying in there and you'd be back and forth on the floor and say okay darn that 
Okay, five more. Okay, go ahead and do five more. Turn. Okay, last five. <laughs> it turns. Okay, one more time. We've just tricked you into. Okay, you can do this one. Uh, so his, that ability as a teacher, as a political guy, he had his, his issues, but as a teacher, very inspiring. Um, and it could pull out of you what you didn't think you could. Uh, Nakayama Sensei, he was just a great leader. He kept that organization together. Uh, he was the glue because when he passed away, things kind of uh, went in different directions. But I do recall one morning I happened to be trained. So I lived at that dojo. Uh, it was a very small dojo. It was like the size of my weight room here. Mm. And uh, I, I lived there. There was a, it's like the two, two basements. There's a lower floor uh, where the dojo was above that, which was half underground, was a, a little dormitory, which is virtually some panels put up a mattress on the floor and you could hear the cockroaches walking on the floor. There's no heat. Uh, you're on your own. <laughs> pretty, pretty rustic to say the, the least. So it was mandatory. There's two rules. If you're going to live in that dojo, the Hoitsugan, you had to train every morning and no girls allowed. That's it. <clears throat> so class was 730 in the morning. So you get up and again, no heat. It was November, December. You put your gi on, it's still wet from the day before and you crawl downstairs into the floor and since Nakiem would come down in his, in his gi with a cardigan sweater over top and he'd sit down and we'd start class. There was one day, there was a fellow there from uh, Fighting Arts uh, Magazine, Ontario O'Neill's uh, Magazine. You may have seen some of them. One of the best magazines I've seen uh, out of Britain. And he was a, a journalist of some sort. Uh, and he, he was interviewing him and I was on the sidelines. And uh, in fact, I have a copy of it here. Uh, because he, there's pictures of he needed a volunteer, so he pulled me out. It looked it's like David and Goliath. He was not a very, very big man. Uh, anyway, he's, he's interviewing him, and he says, "Sensei, there's this fellow in England, and uh, he went through his credentials. He, oh, he's uh, this down and this, and that's down and that." And he went on and on. And Nakayama Sensei was just nodding his head. He says, "Oh, you must know him. Do you know him?" I said, Nakayama just said, "No, no." Uh, I don't know him, but he must be very, very good. Is me? I only practice one thing my whole life, and still not very good. <laughs> like he didn't say that to anyone, but that guy. I just happened to hear it on the sideline, and I just smiled to myself. And said, wow! Um, to be the stature he was, the, the best karate series books that were already on bookshelves all over the world. He's the ah. guy on the um, to come up with a statement like that was quite profound, and it they. The way they run the organization, the, the training was tough as hell, dangerous at times, but um, there was never, like, for example, after a competition. So the, the instructor's class uh, ran at a time when no one else was, and the guys in that, they would compete, of course, and they'd often be the All Japan champion or the or they'd be, or Tanaka Sensei was a world champion four times. So after the tournament, you'd, they'd be back in the dojo the next day, bruised up and battered, and nobody even said a word about it. Nobody said, oh, congratulations to so-and-so. It's just like, okay, back to training. Uh, and that's it. They didn't make a fuss out of, uh, of titles. Uh, it was just sensei. Nobody was, a, nobody was a shihan. Only other people outside of there would call somebody a shihan. They only wore a white gi. They wore a belt with maybe their name on it. They were half tattered. You, you, there was nothing on them to signify what they were. But when they walked in the room, some of those guys, you, you sensed it. It, it, it was just there. And Nakayama was one of those people. He, he just had, a, he had a, a very calming aura about him. 
uh, Tanaka Sensei, he's he was he was tough guy. That's <laughs> honest to God. That's all I can say. He, um, I wouldn't say he was the best instructor in the world, but talented. Mm. And I remember going to the JK one day uh, for training, and I was always nervous going in there because there was blood on the floor every day. We just just foreigners from all over the world were there. Uh, the 1030 foreigner class and then half half foreigners half Japanese and it was it was hard training it was an old bowling alley so they up and down the floor you like 15 steps one way 15 steps the other way it was it was pretty tough anyway I was waiting outside it was a nice sunny day and there's a there like a you go up the stairs outside the building and there was a uh, a landing before going in and from the landing I could look up the street toward the train station I'm just waiting because I was early and I'm looking up the street and I noticed there was people starting to move aside and I look and here's Tanaka sensei walking up the street right that middle of the sidewalk and he's just walking and he's not doing anything on purpose he's just walking up the street and people are just moving out of the way even people going the same direction as him he was like a snowplow that was his energy his aura just coming up the street and uh, he just until you stood right next to him you thought he was this massive person physically he was not but his his aura mm. his energy extended and uh, that's where i began to understand that whole thing about projection he would actually sometimes do a class okay walk across the floor okay now walk across the floor like you mean it <laughs> now walk across the floor with intent like it, uh, it was built into them mm. uh, like a the, probably the last generation where you could call them that samurai mentality for real mm. yeah since it was there was there anything physical about uh, um, Nakayama or Tanaka Sensei that, like, a technique or something where you were like, "Oh man, I've never seen anybody do it like that." And... Oh, well, Nakayama Sensei was—he was in his seventies at the time, so in his day, he was quite good. I've seen old black and white films, and he was yeah. quite good, very fast. Yeah, I saw a video of him once throwing a roundhouse kick and hitting somebody with a roundhouse kick from a distance that I would have thought was impossible until I yeah. saw the video. So I just. Yeah, some of the old, old black and white videos. Uh, yeah, like how do, it's, I don't know how it's even possible, some of it. Uh, with Tanaka Sensei, he was just incredibly flexible, fast and powerful. And he like, you, you don't want to look at him when they're warming up because they'll grab somebody and say, okay, come here and Kumite. So I sparred with him one time. <laughs> he hit me four times uh, before. So he did, I was kicking in the groin because we wanted to see if you were in a cup. And if you were wearing a cup, they'd kick you so freaking hard, they would split. One guy lost a testicle. <laughs> it was an, one of those unspoken rules. You don't wear a cup. Because if you're wearing a cup, they're telling me that you don't trust my, my control. So it's an insult for them. So they would slap you in the balls, slap me in the side of the cheek, come around the other side, and then before, before putting his foot down. Like he was just like playing like, like, like my cat plays with a mouse. <laughs> and, uh, and if you hit you, man, you, yeah, their feet were like cement. Their roundhouse kick, they use the ball of the foot, of course. Um, and so, so, yeah. You had talked about when you said you're always nervous to go in. Yeah. And, and blood on the floor, like every day. Yeah. But I know that there was one day where you just decided things were going to be different for you. And yes. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit because you just made your mind up. And then I think things were different after that day. Yeah. That was my second time over there. So, I would go over for about four months at a time two years apart. So the second time I went over, I worked, I used to work as an electrician and uh, I was working at the Havilland aircraft for about 16 years, ran the dojo in the evenings until 91. 
anyway, uh, I had to work some overtime to make some money because I'm four months. I'm not going to be working. I need to live and eat some, so on. So I probably wasn't training as much as I should have. I was a little bit overweight, uh, not in my best fighting weight, we'll say. And I get there and um, like I'm about two months in and I cannot move fast enough. These guys are coming in like bullets. They're nailing me left and right, I'm bruised and smashed. Control there. If you can split their lip, if you can cut above their eye, that's all acceptable control. If you can crack their rib, that's there's, there's no gloves. You, you crack them a good, you're not trying to break them, like completely break them, but a little snip here and a little bit, that's all acceptable. So that you get used to that pretty quick. So I couldn't move fast enough. And I, I was doing my, uh, I was actually having uh, at the onsen, the public bath, mm. uh, going to a place I could get warm. And I was uh, sitting there. So you sit on a little stool in front of, and there's a big mirror in front of you. And um, I was I was feeling sorry for myself. Uh, in fact, uh, that day I wrote a letter. I was writing a letter home. This is before I would think about phoning home. Early '80s, I guess it was. And uh, writing by like I'm over my head. I, I, what am I doing here? Uh, and my ticket wasn't to ready to go home with for, uh, for another two months. And it's not a time I could change that. Anyway. Uh, I'm having this bath. I put some shampoo in my hand. I go to wash my hair and I put my hands up and look in the mirror. I thought, oh my God. I never actually looked at my arm, but they were all black. Both sides are all from being hammered and blocking and trying to get out of the way and so on. And then I touched uh, like this and then I hit it really hard and it was the same sensation. So obviously there was some, some kind of nerve damage or something. And I had my toe was broken. My uh, eye was cut. Like you, you just sore everywhere. So I had an epiphany, I'll call it, but it was more like a fuck this moment. I've had enough. <laughs> enough. So I thought, okay, what have I got working for me? Because I'm trying to move out of the way. I'm trying to, I'm a pretty big guy and these guys are half my size, but they're, they're like bullets when they come in on you and they nail you, they sting you left and right. So, and I got reach. So I walked into the dojo the next day and, uh, got into Kumite, of course, and they come running in. I just stuck my hand out. Bam! I let a couple of them impale themselves on the end of my fist. And I started dishing it back. I said, I'm not moving. Fuck you. They started coming in. Wham! Wham! So after a couple of weeks, they started backing off a little bit. And then, uh, you know, I'd walk by. They'd go, watch out. You know. It'd be, uh... So you have to carve your your uh, spot on the floor, in a sense, and and own it. And, and that wasn't even the instructor class. That was the regular training. Uh, the instructor class was a whole nother level. That was just insanity, uh, that training. Uh, I thought one day I, I might want to try that, but then I, second thought, yeah. I, in fact, on that note, I, I would run into people from time to time who had been there too long. And I, I just want to, I want to push, this is an interesting thing. In the native, uh, community they have a term for people for uh, the first nations people where they don't they, they half-ass follow say the white way or christian way and half-ass follow their uh, their native ways they call it lost in the woods so it's kind of like you gotta you gotta follow a path and stop bouncing back and forth and I, I that term was appropriate from what i saw there there's some guys there's I'm in my 20s, early 30s, and these guys are in their 50s, mid 50s, and they're all—they can't move properly. They're all smashed up, and uh, they're teaching English to make a living, and they're barely getting by. And they're a little bit twisted. A couple of guys mm. that would go there—they've been beaten so much that they're a little bit like twisted. 
Like one guy actually had a picture album of his injuries or he'd get smashed here and his tooth would go through his lip and he'd go, hey, how you doing? He talks through the hole in his lip. It was a joke. And he was, he had an album of these injuries like we would have trophies on a shelf. And I thought, like, this is just isn't, this isn't right. And I found that some of those folks, they would go there from wherever they came from and they stayed a few years, several years maybe. And then they figure I'll go home. They go home, they realize all their friends have moved on. Wherever they came from is not the same as it used to be. And then they would go back. And they were also trapped in this other thing because being non-Japanese in Japan, you're a gaijin, even if you were born there. It is uh, the most racist country I've ever been in, uh, but it's hidden under many layers of correctness and politeness. But uh, you will never be accepted wholeheartedly if you're a foreigner, that's just the way it is. And those of us who uh, train in Japanese martial arts, you just accept that and that's the way it is. And uh, you get the best of it and go home. So I realized it was better to go there for uh, in, in some cases, months at a time and come back. Now I'll go, I'll go for two weeks and they'll they run a camp a couple of times a year. We'll do some pretty intense training. I'll come back home. Uh, but though in those days, those things weren't happening. And I don't know if it's, I don't think it's as necessary as it was then to get that yeah. sort of training where there's enough, you don't necessarily have to now. But anyway, that's something I observed while, uh, while living there. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, it totally does. That's a lot of insights. I'm curious because Sensusino lived there for a number of years. Other people I know, like Sensusino's good friend, John Gage. Does any of that resonate with you, Sensusino? Any of the things that he's saying? Yes, yes. I mean, I had that epiphany about, about uh, you know, I would never, it, it took me about three and a half years. I'm a slow learner, but I, after three and a half years, I realized, you know, I will, I will always be a curiosity. I'll never be accepted. Uh, and, you know, even though I spoke really good Japanese, you know, hung out with Japanese folks, had a Japanese girlfriend, uh, I would never be. And, and once I realized that, I realized that kind of the same thing, uh, Sensei Jones, that you said, um, it's in many ways better to go over there for a month or a few weeks. Uh, you tend to learn more, um, treat you a little different. When you're there for, for years, it's a, it's a uh, yeah, I don't know. I, just, I, I, I don't think it's, it's healthy for most of us to live there that long. You're right. Yeah. I just want to expand that real quick, Sensei. Did you, Sensei Suino, did you find that you had to step up in any singular day or way, the way Sensei Jones found himself having to do? Well, I was, I was tipped off on that. I mentioned that to, um, to Randy uh, when we first got on this call tonight. I was sort of tipped up. My, my uh, karate teacher in those days, Carl Scott, you know, when he knew I was going to Japan, he said, listen, uh, and, and I, don't, I don't know if this is true, and it sounds a little, it sounds a little rude. Uh, you know, saying it out loud, but, you know, he said, hey, listen, the Japanese respect two things. They respect sincerity and they respect having their ass kicked. Um, and I think he was exactly right. You know, I was the sincerest, you know, I was the sincerest martial artist on the floor, but I didn't start getting real respect until I, uh, until, you know, in judo matches and stuff. And I just, you know, I'm here, I'm going, let's go. Right. You know, not, right. not, not too humble on the, on the competition floor. Yeah. Awesome. Um, it's so, I want to ask yeah. you know, one more thing on that, Ben. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Like, just because you always talk about how special your relationship was with Yamaguchi Sensei. And I feel like maybe he looked at you a little different. Like he, like even though you weren't Japanese, he was like, I just feel in my heart like he was really proud of you as his student. And 
maybe more proud than he could have been of a Japanese student. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I had the most amazing relationship with him. I know he was an internationalist. You know, his kids lived abroad. Um, um, he had, uh, uh, you know, visitors from all over the world. Um, so he may have had a slightly different view than the average Japanese. When I say that about the Japanese culture, I'm referring to culture at large. I certainly had, um, you know, I owe my, I owe almost everything I am today to the to to the folks I trained with in Japan. So I don't I I I'm not uh, I'm not uh, uh, diminishing the value of those experiences, uh, but I do think the culture uh, has a hard time accepting us completely. I, I remember when uh, we were in Okinawa and. Sense Legacy was, uh, I can't remember who the sensei was, Sense Legacy that we were with. It wasn't uh, Ikihara, it was... Um, Yabiku? Yabiku Sensei, oh, yeah. Taba. And Taba. Taba, Taba Sensei, yes. And I remember he wanted to take us somewhere to train and you said, we can't go train with you tomorrow, we already have plans. And he got like really stiff. I remember we were at the table and through the translator and then he said, well, what could be more important than going and training in this place that I want to bring you. And since like he said, well, we want to go to Matsumori and he toasts his graves and wash and clean the graves. And he right away instantly softened and said like, that's a good reason. And the sincerity piece, right? Since you know, that's a good reason. And he said, how is it that you would fly from Canada to clean the graves? And some of my students don't even know where they are. So. Sorry, Sean, I didn't Not at all. That was brilliant. I'm just sitting listening. Um, Sensei Jones, I want to get back to one quick idea, and then we've got some questions coming in, so I want to make sure we get to those. You talk about the dangerousness. You talk about this guy and his injuries and how, how he gets a little twisted, and, and I hear all that. Uh, I'm also a guy who missed the blood and guts era and looks back at it with this real sort of sense of, like, glory and relish. How valuable do you think how, how far do you have to go with it before it's too far? And do you think people go far enough these days? So we're smarter nowadays. Um, there was a lot of abuse and there's a lot of people who are not training anymore because their bodies are too damaged um, when they didn't necessarily have to, have to hurt themselves. Uh, training is, is just different today because we're smarter. Um, I know I, I'm a level four NCCP coach in order to be a national uh, coach. That's an Olympic level coach. So that, that course that I, that the training I did was a two year course uh, uh, and high performance training. And, and what I learned through that was how to maximize your training. So it's not that it's any easier, it's smarter. Mm. We know that we're not going to wear, get ourselves to complete fatigue where we start damaging uh, tissue. Uh, you want to get quick uh, recovery times. There's a certain way of training. So we, when we build that into the training, we can get better results faster. So when you're, what you're talking about, in my opinion, a lot of it was abuse. Mm. Now, some of us could put up with it. Some of us with sturdy bodies and we're fairly large. If you were a lean, small guy taking that kind of abuse, you wouldn't last. You just wouldn't. And some of us were too damn stupid to quit is what it came down to. Um, I remember being at a tournament one time and uh, all the guys in the stands saying, hey, it's my birthday next week. It was April. And there's more than uh, two, three quarters of us happened to be Tauruses. And we realized, well, we're just too damn stubborn to stop. That's <laughs> a legacy is a Taurus too, by the way. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, That's and so, hilarious. Yeah. And so Sente Wally Sloki, he's also a Taurus, by the way. Uh, so, 
<laughs> just stubborn. So uh, I, there's a time and a place for everything and you don't take a beginner and, and what they used to do. I mean, you, you get 50 people sign up and uh, within two months, there's two left because mm. the training was just ridiculous. Um, I, I have a different approach here and I, I treat them nicely for three months and then I warn them what's coming down the road, but you prepare them for it. And then, okay, uh, you got a bunch of, uh, is this recreational? You wanna be a high level competitor? You gotta know what they want. And it's not, you can do that to everybody, uh, but the, there's no need for the abuse. Like beating someone with a Shanai, um, okay, you're gonna toughen the mind, I suppose. Um, but who are you? Like, are, can they physically take it? Are you gonna injure them is, is the issue. Mm. So I, I don't know, it's, a, it's not an easy question. There was no different way of training them. That's the way it was, right. period. I took my, I don't know how many students I injured over the years. I mean, if you've been at this for a while, you've injured many people, you've pissed off a lot of people. I mean, I take my club, when I was competing, I'd take them with me jogging in the freaking streets and we'd do knuckle pushups in the gravel. Like, cause I wanted to get the training out of it. I was being selfish. Well, those people didn't stick around very long. Yeah. Who's gonna train with this crazy guy? Like you have to mature and, and educate yourself to become a better teacher. And I would have trained with you, Sensei. I would have trained with you. Everyone this calls going, that sounds pretty good. I might go do that after the <laughs> show. Sensei Legacy is like, yeah, I would do those knuckle push-ups in the gravel. That's good. Let's do that. <laughs> um, I really appreciate that answer, Sensei. That's really great. Uh, let's go to some questions. So I know that you have some ideas about rank and you've played with the concept of rank or within your club as, as a way to teach. So we have a question from Justin Shea, uh, one of our black belts. And he asks, do you find using belts as motivation to train causes the rank title hunting in modern dojos? In your opinion, would there be a better way to motivate beginners to keep training besides enticing them with rank? Great question. Um, so I find at the lower ranks, uh, it's an issue. Um, so can I answer this in a more broad sense? It's your time. Uh, I love your thinking. So, yeah. Do you, um, how many of you have someone trained a black belt and then they leave? Is that a common issue? Yeah. And I've learned the same thing. And it's taken me most of my life to realize why. We live in North America. In fact, we live in Canada. It's a safe country. So uh, friends of mine, like your Stan Schmidt um, from South Africa or people who live in Brazil or in Mexico or uh, the Middle East, uh, their, their reality is quite different than ours. They have, when they walk out of their house in the morning, there is real danger. You could have your car uh, jack, uh, be carjacked. You can be shot, you can be, so, your, your reason for going to the dojo is different. Here, that's not the same reality. And I'm not saying this is perfect either. There are risks, but it's not even close to what some people in, in the world live. So I find that getting a black belt is similar to getting a, a certificate for skydiving or a certificate for scuba diving. Now it's a lot more hard work, but it's something to hang on the wall. And you do this training you get to this point, now you get this thing weighing on the wall and put on your resume mm -hmm. because uh, the job you want to get, and they say, oh, you got a university degree, that's good. You show follow through. Oh, you're a black belt in martial art. You really know how to work hard. 
And that's mostly what it's being used for. Like how many people are we training today that are police officers, jail guards, security people? They're, no, these people are enjoying the training for recreation and what they're getting from it. And, and I'm not devaluating any of that. So take that back because uh, everybody in the world knows black belt is a significant achievement, no matter where it comes from. So knowing that and what coming into dojo, uh, the, the goal of the belt, I look at it as a tool to teach a young person goal setting because you have a timeline. You have from this time to this time. So and you can break it down into small portions. And if you learn that skill, you'll be successful in other things in life because you'll learn how to achieve goals. Because you'll, you'll have a realistic time period. You'll break it down into smaller pieces and achieve these smaller pieces one step at a time. And that's what the, the biggest value I see at the belt system. But I'm never going to pass somebody that just because they showed up to class a number of times and they do their test and they forget half their cut. Sorry, you don't pass. This, our dojo, is one of the few places around here where we'll say, no, you didn't pass. I'm sorry. Because our school system, unfortunately, uh, isn't, isn't doing that anymore. Mm. And other, other places where you get a medal for, for participating. Um, we reward mediocrity everywhere in our society today. If we're going to be of value to anybody, we're going to teach them properly. And if they're not doing it properly, don't reward them. Let them come back and try it again. So if they, and I tell parents straight up, when I, have an, uh, when I start new people, I sit them all down, the kids and the parents with them and explain all this to them. That in three months time, we're going to try and get you to do a yellow belt test. And uh, if you don't practice, you probably won't be ready. So, so uh, if you don't pass, and if they don't fail, uh, sorry, don't pass the test, parents are there too. We bring them in, we have a conversation. Got to fix up this and this and this. Three months back and try later. And by the way, I'm not charging you for that, um, but you're not ready yet. And that's, then there's value in that. And if they cry and leave and that, well, then fine, go. Because obviously you're in the, doing this for the wrong reasons. But is it important? Yes. Um, uh, when kids are, of course, kids always want a grade. So I, I've done this a, a few times. Maybe you've done the same thing. Okay, who wants a grade? And we'll have to pretty much audition them for a grading. Um, and I see some of them, they're not even ready for grading. So I, I'll say, okay, come here. Orange belt kid or something or green belt kid. I'll say, I take my belt off. I said, give me your belt. So I put his belt on. I put my belt on him. I said, okay, you want to spire now? Well, no. Well, why? You're a black belt. I'm a green belt. Yeah, but but you're better. Well, yeah, but you got a black belt on. <laughs> so it kind of gets the point across to them in an yeah. interesting way that I don't have to explain anything. It's it's completely self-explanatory. So it's not about what's around your waist, it's what can you do? I'm always telling them the belt doesn't the belt only tells me what you're supposed to know. And by the way, if you're supposed to know it and you don't know it, give me that belt back because I'm putting it up on the shelf and you come back and show me that you know what you're supposed to know and you can have it back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway. I love uh, that. It took me into my 30s to realize that my failures were where my real growth was going to come from. It course. really did. I was 32 and I went, oh, I've been looking at this all wrong. Yeah. And it was a beautiful release when I finally was able to accept that. Um, yeah. I'm going to jump to another question from Robert Shlomsky, who you've met, who's running our show tonight and is part of our Punch Kick Choke Chat team. Do you need to carve your spot on the floor 
as a beginner or intermediate student? And is that something, or is that something you have to do periodically as a martial artist? I'd actually no. like to ask everybody this question, starting with Sensei Jones. Okay, um, as a beginner and an intermediate, I would say no. Uh, when you get into the black belt ranks, if you're gonna compete, if you're gonna, it, it sorts itself out, I, I think, in most dojos. You got those who are really uh, hot to compete at a high level if they want to, or uh, take it to another level. And those guys will do their own training in a sense. And the others like carving your space in the floor. Well, you're going to face everybody at some point, uh, mm. but I, I believe a dojo has got to have a little bit of an edge to it. If there isn't a couple of guys walking around your dojo that you like, you're thinking, shit, I don't want to be with that guy. That's not a dojo. If it's all mm. nice and warm and fuzzy, <laughs> that's not a dojo. <laughs> I always tell them, if your sphincter isn't twitching once in a while, you're not training properly. <laughs> I can't hear what they're saying. Uh-oh. Oh. oh. Sensei Legacy, are you okay, Sensei Legacy? Can you hear us? I, I, have, I was having a hard time because there was noise going on. It's okay now. Okay. okay. Awesome. So uh, I'm going to go in sort of reverse order. So Sensei Dolphin, what are your thoughts on that? I'm carving out your spot. Uh, I mean, it's one of those things where I can hold value in two different opinions and see value in both of them. Uh, and I think it probably goes to what Sensei Jones was talking about. Um, it's really, what do you want? What, what are you trying to get out of martial arts, right? Like what, you know, are you a five-year-old kid who is a yellow belt? Well, it's not really about like your attitude at that point. It's about what you learn and how you feel when you come to the dojo. Um, but if you're older and you want to compete or you want to use this in a real world setting, then I think there has to be some element of competing against the people around you to develop a certain attitude in a, like, you know, Sensei Mustard was talking about it the last time when we were in BC talking to him, he said, you guys have a certain attitude when you walk in and I don't think you can develop that attitude without carving out your place. Sensei Jones did it in Japan, like people charging at him, bang, he's just sticking the fist in their face and he's carving out his face. But I don't think that's something for everybody. I don't, I don't think. And I think if your dojo is like that, if everybody's always competing with each other and they're always trying to carve out their space, you're going to have a fractured dojo where, people are not getting along with each other and you know the person comes in and they're like tonight's the night and you never really get to know the people and so I think there's a time and a place for that you know you come here Sean you and I we love each other we fight each other like I get chipped teeth from you and I get black eyes from you and we carve out our space in the moment but after the moment's done we hug each other and we go have coffee and have a beer and everything's good Yep. You give me a lot of credit. I appreciate it. <laughs> I think it's the other way around more often than not. Sensei Suido, your thoughts on that? Well, I guess um, I sort of, it's all been said, uh, uh, but isn't that something that makes martial arts training at a good dojo really special is what you just described, Randy, where um, you go in and you, and you fight, you know, all the people in our judo program, there's a pecking order in our judo program and everybody's trying to maintain their spot or climb. Um, but they also all go and hang out afterwards. They're also, it's a, it's, it's a group of best, you know, it's, it's, it's 38, it's 38 best friends who just fight really, really hard when on the floor. Um, that's kind of unique. I, I don't know where else that exists. 
So yeah, we're carving out our space and yeah, afterwards we're, uh, you know, helping people move their apartments or, or, or buying them dinner. Yeah, right on. Hanshi Legacy, you want to add anything to that idea? Oh yeah, from, uh, I believe that uh, you are just a person that's going to develop and everyone from the second they put that barefoot on the floor, you start becoming who you're going to be. Some of us are going to be great. Some of us are not. So I, I believe that that pecking order or that uh, leadership, maybe it's your leadership running over top of others that uh, it's not meant to cause any damage, but it just happens in the way that you train and the heart that you have. And whether you look at the martial art or yourself is the thing that you really want to uh, promote, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's sometimes it's always better to, to save your daughter than it is to save yourself. And I feel that when you have a good cause like martial arts, that you will give it your everything. I know I did. And I think I'm looking at other people on the show that also did the same. That's why it's sort of easy for us to recognize but how many millions of others couldn't do it? So I just think that's common for a martial artist. You're a warrior. You know, people can wheel swords around. Never, not everybody's a warrior. And that's just by giving it to us by whoever created us. That's, that's just a, a piece of cloth that we're taken from. So we're not going to demean ourselves for somebody else who's not even going to make, not even going to make any difference at a later time. Thanks, Hanji. What do you um, think? Well, the, you, yeah, the only you never answer. So why don't uh, you? <laughs> um, I have, I have, I guess, um, two ideas on it. One is real simple. You know, Robert, when I first started, I made a deal with myself that anytime Hanchi asked who wanted to fight and afterwards Sensei Dofa, I would raise my hand. I would never not raise my hand. Obviously when I'm shooting TV shows, I, I do have to say no, but other than that, I never say no. So any spot I've carved out wasn't about trying to carve out a spot. It was about trying to learn how to do something better. And the way I was going to do that was by facing a fear of fighting that I used to have. Um, and also just learn. And so it was through the desire to learn how to get better at something that I was there to learn. Obviously it's not just fighting, but it started there. Um, and if I ever got any good at it, and if I've ever been able to put hands on people that carved me out a spot, aside from just being a devoted student of Hanshi and of Sensei, um, that came not from a desire to carve out a spot. It came out from a desire to get better at karate. The only other thing I want to add, you know, um, when I was training down with Hiritaka Nishiyama in Los Angeles is I think it's really important to surrender to the new environment and get what they're doing there. And the example I give is that they didn't free spar the same way we do. It was more go, whoever touches back out, reset. And it's, it was linear all day long. There was no shifting left or right. And I was losing, so to speak, the exchanges. And one day I just said, you're losing because you want to be doing it on the terms of legacy shore and rue, but you're not in a legacy shore and rue club. So when he moves, hit him first. And my fighting got better because I was willing to work on their terms in their dojo when it came to how they want to free spar. 
which didn't look like ours. So anyways, for me, that was like, I can't carve a spot by being terminally unique on the fringes while losing exchanges. It's like, how do they do it here? Great. Now get real good at how they do it here. And so that was important to me. There was humility around that. So that'd be my answer. Sean, I want to like, because Robert asked that question. So I want to maybe, well, let's say Jones, but I'm going to build on it. Cause I know Robert pretty well and like carving out your spot could be analogous to creating a reputation, right. Or becoming, yep. becoming something right. Building maybe a reputation or building yourself into something. And my thinking on that is, I don't know how Sensei Jones feels about it. And I don't know how Sensei Legacy feels about it. But when I was competing a lot, I had people who would chase me around to tournaments. They wanted to fight me because they thought that miraculously, if they beat me that one time, they would gain this persona that I had built over every win, every loss, every mm. trip. And I think you carve out your spot through time by just, and it's not about all the great things that you feel good about when you lose and get knocked on your ass, like all of those things build your persona, they build your reputation, they build that thing. So I guess when I make that statement, Sensei Jones, what do you think about that? Do you have any thoughts about that? Or it's yeah, feel no, free to totally disagree or like, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, any reputation of any champion that was built over time. And, and you want to knock that person off the top of the pile, then you're going to have to work hard to, just like they did. You know, that's, that's how it works. <laughs> You're going to be on top. Be prepared to take the, the heat. <laughs> In my, may I say something here? Your loyalty is to your art, not to your teacher. Because your teachers sometimes change. And when you're training to make the art better, people who get in the way are in the way. And they need to train harder too if they want to be that person. So... That sort of explains why some people hit the floor running because it is their destiny to become Nishiyama, Nakayama, etc. Right? Or Funakoshi, for instance. Mm. So, yeah, it's that simple, really. Um, these are incredible questions. We have one more, and then we're going to go to our ten questions. Um, so from Sensei Conroy Copeland, we did just uh, touch on some aspects of this, but going back to your time in Japan, Sensei Jones, um, Sensei Jones, good to see you. He, uh, Sensei Copeland says, what traits do you think North American students can take from that Japanese way of training? Shut up and do it. That's <laughs> Stop talking so much. Just do it. <laughs> We in North America, blah, 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 blah. Holy Christ. Just freaking do it. The devil is in the doing. Repe the repetition is the mother of skill. Like how many, just fucking do it. <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> I like that. Those who have been in Japan can get that. <laughs> just, <clears throat> and, and then do it again. <laughs> Um, and that's really all. It, that's it. And and when you go to when you go to Japan, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Stop. Like one of the, one of the things that, that I learned over there over time was the difference between the tourist and the one who was serious about training and learning. <clears throat> so 
they would, the North Americans were famous for going over to the Hombu Dojo and say, yeah, yeah, I'm here for uh, three weeks. I'm gonna train three times a day or blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, okay, they got you all figured out. You're not here for a short time. I'm not gonna invest any time in you, but if you just show up and then you show up again and then they kick your ass around. And if they start kicking you around, they know they're interested in you. And then they kick around for, and then you show up the next day bruised and, or they take you out you know they're really interested in you when they say go get you get you drunk <laughs> i mean shit face wow. drunk but you can't walk and then you show up the next day because they're there too and then you start earning some respect it's like oh okay he keeps showing up i beat him i got him hammered and he's still here then they start showing you shit by kicking you around and then uh, teaching you the hard they don't tell you they just my hands were too low one day i got kicked in the head like three times in a row and said oh right keep my hands up <laughs> um and that's, yeah, so keep your mouth shut and just shut up and do it. Mm. Like you're running a class, explain what you're doing, now do it. <laughs> Don't spend an hour explaining all their friggin' detail about it. You know, give them a little piece at a time. Coach them as they're doing it. Anyway, I'm going to shut up on that because uh, that's, that's the biggest thing I can say right there. That's a <laughs> great answer, says the Jones. Yeah. I like it because uh, if you... If you ever go train with Sesuino and Iido, most of the time there's not much talking while you're doing the style that itself says direct transmission. Yeah. So you're just quiet and you're just doing it. And if you're lucky, Sesuino will say, Does anybody have a question? Most likely you're just going to be quiet for the whole two hours and yeah. receive receive some corrections and then go work on those corrections. That's what a class is supposed to be. <laughs> Have your chat in the bar after over your beer. Mm. I always said I learned more about karate in the bar than I did in the dojo. I learned how to do my karate in the dojo. <laughs> That's what this whole show is about, Sensei Jones. That's yeah, right. you're right. Yeah. It, it's, about, it's about me riding in the back seat of the car when Sensei Legacy was talking to somebody <laughs> like you. And I got to just sit in the back seat and listen to the two of you talk and hear about what karate was. Uh, yeah, he's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you'll notice that, I mean, you say you're going to shut up on this, but nobody's interrupting you because you could do an hour and a half on just this topic. <laughs> yeah. You could literally do an hour and a half on just the yes. overabundance of talking. And I'm, I'm guilty of it as a teacher and a student. Um, Sensei, it's time for 10 questions. It, okay. This is something we ask all our guests. We ask that you answer impulsively, but then feel free to expand as you wish. Okay. What is the most effective move in your martial arts arsenal? A reverse punch. Who is the most influential martial artist in your life? Sensei Soroka. Who do you believe is the most influential martial artist of all time and why? Of all time. I'm going to go out and say Bruce Lee because he uh, he brought the world uh, brought it to the world in a sense in a way that got a lot of people interested and and started something that has never stopped. It's just changed gears and other people have taken their place. But because he's in it was in the entertainment business, he put it out there in a way that was appealing. What excites you most about the next five years of your training? maintaining myself 
uh, and making it to 70 without falling apart. <laughs> mm. uh, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get there? Good work. Uh, you, you may have touched on this, but this is different than influential. Your favorite film and TV martial artist. Jackie Chan. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Cause he doesn't take himself too seriously. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Um, what martial artist living or dead of any time in history do you wish you could train with? Matsumura. Mm. All right. Best answer ever. <laughs> best answer. Yeah. yeah, everything I've read about him. Uh, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. I just uh, from the little I know of him, uh, would have been nice to be a fly on the wall in the dojo. And if there was a time machine to go back uh, and see some of that, how this uh, our our method of our methodology of training evolved with this combination of sword work and uh and martial and unarmed yeah i think that would be it hey hey at least you got to train sensei with his uh, maternal grandson right like chitosi oh, sensei right like oh was he i didn't even know that yeah huh yeah there's some old pictures with chitosi was quite young with, with all those old uh, senseis yeah huh yeah if everyone in the world could have the greatest benefit you've gotten from martial arts, whether they train or not, what, what gift would be bestowed upon them? Discipline, uh, healthy body. And uh, bottom line, if you have no discipline, you'll achieve nothing. And um, I know um, being raised by, if my father was uh, left school at grade five, grade five because uh, his father had died, 12 kids, and at 13, got to leave out the home. So he didn't have any uh, worldly advice to pass on. And my mother was a simple woman working a bank uh, her whole life. Uh, so what I got from martial arts was the discipline and the, um, which gave me the ability to achieve everything I wanted to achieve, to travel to every place I wanted to travel, to meet every person to date, that I've wanted to meet and have, uh, I'll call it, some people say you gotta be rich to do the things you wanna do. I have a different term. I call it an uncompromised life or an uncompromised lifestyle. Mm. So many people I trained with over years were, um, I always say, you come with me to Japan. Oh, well, I can't, I, I got a job, I got this. And I get it, people had responsibility. I didn't get married probably till I was 51. Uh, so everybody has responsibilities, but, um, um, if you ha have a goal in mind, you got to go for it. Mm. I mean, have the dojo you it was mentioned earlier. I bought this building for God's sakes and built the. I built the dojo I wish I could have trained at when I was younger, and maybe I would have gotten further along as a as a competitor. Um, I may have had enough talent to make it to a, a world uh, championship status, but other things, um, other responsibilities kept me from from doing that. So I wanted to educate myself to become the best teacher and the teacher I wish I could have had mm. and the best facility to train in that I wish I could have trained at. Because I, 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 
but in the day, nobody knew any of that stuff. Uh, I mean, I had to go to a gym to do some weight training. I had to do some cardio work over there with someone else and then sensor circus training. Uh, so nothing was joined. We were all poking around in the dark trying to figure it out. And uh, now um, we're all much better educated because uh, we, we have the resources in front of us that we can use at any time if you want to. Yeah. Greatest achievement and greatest regret. Oh, I don't know if I've reached my greatest achievement. Um, uh, greatest regret. <laughs> greatest regret. Um, I'm not going to say ending up in a French prison almost killed a couple. <laughs> Because that taught me more than uh, anything. <laughs> mm. uh, that was one of the best educations I ever had. I certainly didn't think so at the time. Uh, but in retrospect, uh, it, uh, because being a martial artist and uh, being in some of those situations allowed me to, um, like you say, we push things aside that are not useful and uh, we retain the things that are useful. And uh, I guess I realized a long time ago, what is important, what is not important. Um, when, when I used to compete and making it onto a national team or a provincial team was one of the most important things ever. After going through that experience, uh, realizing that uh, it's not as important as I thought it was, but surviving sure is. And, uh, and protecting myself and my loved ones is more important. And, uh, Enjoy, appreciating the life we have. I have an expression uh, while I was locked up um, that kept me sane because uh, I was uh, alone in a foreign country. I didn't speak the language in a cell, most of the time alone, um, out to walk around for uh, 20 minutes twice a day. Uh, it, was, it was a real hellhole. Fleury Maragis, uh, prison of 5,000 prisoners, uh, everything from terrorists, murderers, rapists, to somebody who had too many parking tickets all in the same place. It's unbelievable. Um, and I thought, and I would often say to, I've explained it after the fact that I realized when I was there, it says, you, you ever have a really bad dream and you're, you're in this horrible place and then you wake up and realize, oh my God, thank God that was a dream. Well, being in a situation like that was the opposite where you were having this wonderful dream and you wake up and realize, oh fuck, I'm still in this nightmare. And that's your life. And in order to cope with that, I wrote a little uh, haiku type poem. It's not, it doesn't rhyme either. The, the haiku style of writing can be quite profound. And it goes like this. This is the gray skies that cloud our lives are sure to clear as a dawn breaks an endless night. So I put that at the front of my book actually. Um, and I have it posted on the wall in the back of my dojo. And I've explained to my students why it's there. Mm. I explained that in my darkest hour, I wrote that to remind me that everything is temporary. There's no such thing as an endless night. As much as you may think it's never going to end, I'm never going to stop suffering. It will, either by death or by curing or what, but it will end, like everything in life. And uh, 
And I've also explained since I've been home and got my life back together and built this beautiful dojo and have all these wonderful students, I'm married. I also have to remind myself that this is also temporary. In fact, it has helped me more recently going through uh, COVID. I, I actually was told by one of my members, go read your sign as we were also trying to stay alive and trying to figure out how to work our way through this whole mess. And then realizing, okay, yeah, this isn't gonna last forever. And right now I'm dealing with it. My wife has uh, breast cancer. She's going through hell. And as a family, we're going through a really rough time. I gotta constantly remind myself, this is temporary. We're going to get through this. So uh, I guess that's, uh, <laughs> I forget why, how I got onto that. But the fact that it's, uh, we have to enjoy what we have while we have it. I've said many times, in the, and it's, you know that you've imparted something useful on somebody when they tell it to you back, sometimes years later. Mm. And there's many times I've sat in the dojo after a steaming hot class, we've been kicking and punching and pad training and everything else, and we're just soaked. And we're sitting in Mokso at the end of the class, and I turn around when we bow and I say, remember how this feels. This is what good health feels like. And one day when you're about to leave this world and all of your strength is gone and ever, uh, your life is about to, to dissolve in front of you, remember that you were here. You tasted what absolute excellent health feels like. When your legs are on fire, when your lungs were burning, when your heart is pounding and you're sweating, this is what it feels like to be truly alive. And appreciate this because you won't always have this. One day you will not be able to do this. Anyway. I've said that from time to time and I've had it said back to me because it did impart something on them. So I'm happy, um, I guess back to what you said earlier, greatest achievement, I suppose it would be to impart something useful to somebody that helped improve them in their life and, or help them get through something challenging um, because of something we did or a way they trained or something was imparted from the dojo. I always believe, Anybody walks in this dojo, if it's for three months or it's for 30 years, when you leave here, I don't care how long you're here, but I hope you took something useful with you. And, uh, and the kicking and the punching is the last thing I, I care about. I see other things that are useful that will get us through our life and, and hopefully make it better, if not for yourself or someone else, if that makes any sense. Anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> makes all the sense in the world, Sensei. Um, Sensei Dofa, I want to throw it to you for uh, a last question before we do our, our round and out. Yeah, Sensei Jones, you started to touch on it. Uh, you know, you can't drop the mic and then walk away like that. People are going to want to know why you were in a French prison. <laughs> and um, the martial arts people, like for me in particular, I would like to know if you feel comfortable with it. If you don't, like just let it pass, like no problem. But when you say like, you know, these life-threatening situations and how your karate helped you, like what, so how did you get in that French prison and how did your karate help you when you were there? I'll give you the shortest version I can. In the early eighties, uh, uh, I had gone to Japan and trained for a few months, came back. Uh, I was laid off my job and I was pretty much broke. And uh, a fellow that I knew for a long time through uh, the dojo had been uh, smuggling uh, hash oil from the tribal area to smugglers in Pakistan and making a living doing that. 
So he uh, convinced me to uh, do a run for him to make a, make some money, get me out of my tight spot. And every cell in my body was saying, no, 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 no. But what came out of my mouth was okay. Mm. So off I went. Um, again, I'm, I won't go in. If you want to read the book, it's, uh, it's all in there. Uh, I ended up uh, in, uh, in Peshawar on the border of Afghanistan while the war with Russia was on. Um, meeting with a Pashtun and uh, carrying three kilos of hash oil through uh, Pakistan into India and then into Europe. I landed in Paris. Um, I was uh, discovered there what I had. I was arrested. I was put into a maximum security prison. And their French uh, prison system is different. You're, uh, you're guilty till proven innocent. It's the reverse. It's a no Napoleonic system of justice. So I was locked away, uh, too sweet, as they say, and uh, had to survive in there. <laughs> and uh, no one even knew I left. Uh, I didn't even tell my mother I was going. I was gonna, supposedly going to be away for about three weeks. I had a pregnant girlfriend at home. <laughs> and uh, I had some very good friends at home who kept the dojo going and kept things quiet. And uh, so while I was in there, I uh, really, there was violence. Oh, my God, violence every day. 80% uh, of the, Arab, uh, the uh, prison population were Arabs. Uh, they like to band together. And this, that gang was against the, the Asian gang. And this gang was against, and I was by myself. And um, uh, so I used to, uh, in fact, one day I saw a couple of guys who were sparring. It's a couple of African guys. And one guy was short and stocky. He was about my, my age. With a younger guy and they were sparring they took uh, they used to take two pair of socks and they roll one pair of socks up and stick it in the end of another slip it over their hand and that was a glove so you could hit they were not hitting full blast but they're hitting decent so i went over and sort of you know, indicated that i wanted to practice with them um, <laughs> less than a year before that i had competed in egypt at the world championships so i was in pretty good shape so anyway the the one guy who was kind of leading the thing he says oh indicate I should go with this other young guy. And he was a kickboxer. So we went at it a little bit and his style of kickboxing, there wasn't a lot of strategy there. It was easy to grab a foot, sweep him, dump him, you know, didn't have much problem with that. So after a while he said, okay, you and me. And so we went and kind of duked it out for a while. He was short and stocky, I was longer and lean, but we were probably evenly matched. And we, we had a good time going at it pretty, pretty good. And then now when we finished, uh, he said, oh, well, indicated we should meet tomorrow or the next day or whatever so when i left there a few guys asked me oh what was that so oh, that's some karate training oh can you teach us so okay so i figured i got a bunch of these hard asses together during the morning exercise and i take them over to a place covered by a roof and i started training them mm. and uh, like i mean hardcore within a few weeks i was doing what it would take me six years to train somebody i had like guys on the shoulders and the guy in the bottom doing the stance, the guy in the top, and like, because they were tough, they were hard. Most of them were Africans, like carved out of ebony steel, <laughs> Jesus. So I would go to my cell and the guy was in a cell with another Canadian guy, we spoke French. He says, how do you say get lower? And how do you say this? So I started learning French by, by teaching karate. And then that went on for a while. And then there was a, so one of the situations I ran into there was a guy, uh, 
so I had I could have a job because my crime was not uh, heinous. Uh, it was it was cannabis. So I was I had the privilege of having a job, so I I could make some money and buy food because uh, the the shit they gave you in there to eat was disgusting. Um, you ever have tripe, horse intestines with potatoes? Oh, Jesus. Anyway, that's another story. So I got a job in this place where they took engine parts for Peugeot, I think, out of the molds and they would bring them in in skids and we grind off through all the rough edges. So I got good at this big belt sander, taking these exhaust manifolds and grinding the, the rough edges off them. And there was a guy, another guy in there. He was my, the guy next to me in the cell, big African guy. Like he was like a, built like a tank. He could hold an engine block with one hand and turn it over and use the grinder. Like he was a monster. He was like the, the Black Hulk. <laughs> and, and I had no issues with it. Um, uh, but we couldn't really communicate. My French wasn't good enough at the time. Anyway, uh, I noticed, so knowing him, we'd line up going in, going out, never had a problems with, with him ever. Uh, so he had been uh, pressuring the guy that serves the food. So when the food cart comes around, they open your door, they give you a bowl of whatever, and uh, there's a guard with him. So the guy next to the that big guy was uh, pressuring uh, this guy to give him more food. Well, he can't because the guard's right there. <clears throat> so one day in the yard, I noticed that that guy had the little, he's a skinny little uh, uh, guy from the Middle East in the corner and he was pulling a knife out. He was gonna cut him up. So I got in between them. I thought this wasn't right. I kind of pushed him back and pulled it. So we had a standoff and uh, because of the rage he was in, he looked at me, I could tell in his eyes, if either one of us took another step forward, somebody was gonna die. And uh, it took me a long time to realize what that actually was. And it, it, I'm still, I wouldn't say disturbed by it, but it took a piece of me that I didn't realize could, could do that. It was real. You gotta realize when you're in a place like that, that's not like I, I'm walking to my car tonight and somebody comes out and say, hey man, I'm gonna kick the shit. No, you're in a fucking prison. You don't have a name. Your dignity is down the shitter. You, uh, you've been in there for months. You've never had a friendly face talk to you. You see violence every day. And you listen to, I had to listen to people dying at night, like hanging themselves or setting themselves on fire and, and screaming all night. And they won't open cells because they're on a skeleton staff. And you just crawl into this place where you think you can be safe. So it's not a normal circumstance. And when you're in there, when, you're, when somebody's gonna pull a blade on you, you're either gonna get cut up or you're gonna kill the guy. And, and I don't mean beat him up, you're gonna kill him. So fortunately, when, when our eyes met, there was enough where he backed up a little bit and put it down and, and it ended. Um, and then we never really had words about it after, but mm. maybe he calmed down and cooled off and he didn't take, like he didn't, I, I guess I saved that little guy. Uh, um, so that was one where uh, it didn't actually get into it. But the, the time when I was attacked by, I'll call it a mob, I was trying to save somebody else. Where this young English, well, actually it was, Algerians and Tunisians don't get along very well. So I don't know which one was which, 
but there was about four guys at the door getting the shit kicked out of them by this huge gang. And I, it was Christmas Eve. And I thought, fuck this shit. And I couldn't, couldn't deal with it. I, I pushed my way into the middle. I got in between them. I pushed these other guys back and they're spitting at me. And, they're, and I, I stopped that problem. Uh, and these four guys, they opened the door for them. They took them inside, took them to the infirmary and they patched them up a little bit. <clears throat> so I didn't hit anybody. I just kind of between them and stopped some punches. They were trying to hit me. I just blocked and slapped it away. It wasn't, wasn't that dangerous. Uh, but what had happened, there was this young English kid that was part of my training group. A 19 year old kid made some bad moves in his life and ended up in there. He thought he would try and get in there and help me, but he didn't make it. And a few guys had him up against the fence and a few guys were holding him and they were kind of laying into him. So I ran over there and got between him and the ones who were beating on him and pushed them back. Well, he's livid. And you can imagine your adrenaline's pumping at this time. And he's cursing and swearing, oh, that son of a bitch, I made a fucking So I said, I made a fatal mistake. I said, all right, tell you what, you go get that asshole. I'll keep the rest of them off you. So off they go. He's barking at them. And they don't understand what each other's saying, but they know damn well this means we're going to go at it. And the two of them go off to this area where everybody used to fight. Now the whole yard, 300 people, start converging in this area because they know there's going to be some action. He gets too far ahead of me. Next thing I know, they're diving on this kid from every angle and he goes down. Now I dive in there trying to save him. And I got one guy going this way, one guy going that way. Apparently I hit a few guys, but I don't remember. It's, a, it's almost a blur. But there was a guy to my right who had a knife and he was kind of looking for that opening to get in and, and, uh, and get me. So when I turned toward him, he had his front leg out and straight. And I knew it, I was going to kick his knee. And I had that instantaneous moment, think, fuck, that'll cripple him. And I hesitated. Idiot. You know what I talk about biggest regret? That was it. <laughs> <laughs> I crippled the son of a bitch. So I, because I hesitated, somebody came from the other side and I had to deal with that guy. Next thing I know, over my shoulder, I see this blade coming down from my back. I lunge forward to, to avoid it, tripped myself, hit the deck, dislocated my own shoulder, got up as the blade came down, cut my coat open, and I got out in the open and moving around where they kind of, I could move. And things began to disperse because the guards were starting to look out, pointing at people to take inside and do whatever they do with them. So <clears throat> I ended up, like, I didn't know what happened. I'm holding my arm, thinking, shit, this hurts, man. And so they take me in the infirmary. They take me up with this bone here is down in my armpit. And uh, uh, they realize, well, they, they don't know how to fix it there. They're going to have to take me to a, a hospital. Are we over time, by the way? Oh, it's <laughs> okay. It's a story and we'll, we'll yeah, take it out. Man. We're not cutting yeah. you off on this. Okay. Yeah. So uh, they said, go back to your cell and uh, we'll, we'll call you. We're going to take you to a hospital. Okay, fine. So I got back to my cell. I started going to shock. Uh, it was the kid I, that I rescued. He was a few doors down and the windows were open. You could, you could take a mirror out and, and talk to one another from the outside of the building. So I had to sit down because, uh, you know, you, when you're in shock, you get nauseous and so on. So I finally, they come and get me. They take me down into this holding cell. They bring a truck around. They bring me out. They put chains around my ankles. First of all, he had handcuffs and I'm looking at him like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm like my arm, I can't, there's no way. So he put, put chains around my ankles and he walks me over to the, 
the uh, truck, they kind of throw me in the back. Off we go to this hospital. <clears throat> and uh, they take me in the hospital. And I, this, this moment was the lowest moment of my entire life. If there was a crack in the floor, when I was sitting there waiting to be seen, if there was a crack in the floor, I would have crawled into it because I'm now in a public hospital. I'm covered in blood. My knees were ripped open from when I hit the deck and they're all ripped and bloody. I didn't even have winter clothes. Somebody gave me some shitty coat that I had on. I'm filthy, I haven't washed. And I'm in a hospital and everybody's looking at me like I've just crawled out of some cave and I've got the plague. And uh, it was just, it was horrible, horrific and humiliating. And finally they took me into a room Stripped me down. I got like three guards in here and somebody else over there, a doctor, he's looking at the x-ray. So he starts pulling on my arm and trying to pull it back in and of course it won't go back in. No freezing, nothing, just he's a prisoner. So what? So he, one time he tried, he was doing some twisting thing on it, trying to roll it in, I guess. He sort of half went in and it popped back out again. And then my whole body just started to tremble on the table and the chains were rattling. And so the doctor told this young nurse, her hold on to his arm he, she had to go get some get something somewhere else so for a moment i had a little bit of peace <laughs> i look up first female face i had seen in uh, what six months <laughs> so i had enough french by this time to say hey what are you doing later he <laughs> 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 looked at Smile and says, oh, nothing. <laughs> How about I pick you up around eight? <laughs> and she smiled and laughed. And, I, you know, I, I'm not going to say it was all worth it for that, but it was all worth it for that. <laughs> anyway, doctor comes back and he, he tells the, the prison people, says, well, we can't fix it. we got to operate. So they take him back to the prison. So they throw me back in that truck, back down to the, the prison, into that little holding cell again, which is, I don't know, four feet wide, maybe long with the <clears throat> bars on the front of it. And by this point, I've just like, had it. And I, I another fuck this moment. So I, I kind of got up, I went over to the bar. So I took my one hand, I reached over and grabbed the hold of the bar, <clears throat> pulled myself and pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled. And I heard this crunch and a pop. And all of a sudden I could, Hey, I think I may have got it in. And I moved it around and the guard came around and I said, Hey, I called him over. So he came over and I did this. Hey, look. And I heard him. He looked at me. So he go back to the office. He said, Ah, uh, look at that. He says he fixed it. <laughs> so anyway, they came. The doctor comes. He looks at it. He feels it. He says, ah, yeah, you're good. Take him back to a cell. We'll send you some painkillers. So anyway, he takes me back to the cell. No painkillers showed up. So I laid there in bed all night, Christmas Eve, I remember. <clears throat> and uh, the searing, searing pain in the shoulder, you can imagine. Uh, all it gave me was a piece of gauze to wrap around my neck and hang it. He says, okay, that, that's it, uh, off you go. And uh, so the next morning they came to give us some, some coffee. And the guy said, oh, I forgot to give you these last night. He said, fuck that, shove it up your ass. I don't need it now. I've been through the worst of it. And uh, so I never never was treated properly. I had the stupid thing around my neck. And that guy that was trying to stab me, I saw him in the yard a couple of times. And I did some research to find out how much time it would get if I killed him. 
And it was, the answer was six years ah. of killing a prisoner. And I thought about it. <laughs> I thought about it. Because he had a bunch of guys around him when I was out there. And it's like, you son of a fucking kid. We kept apart from one another. And uh, anyway, that was, that was another one of those moments that I never want to relive. And I uh, don't wish on, a, on anyone. And it took, a, took years for that shoulder to come back. When, when I got, I got released on, it's called provisoire. It's a type of bail. And then I had to wait another six months for a trial in the damn country. And that's when I started training at a dojo in Paris under Serge Chiraki, who was one of the uh, French um, national coaches. And over time I started working. And when I got home, I started doing weight training and flexibility. It did come out six times after that. So then I just started really working on stabilizing and building strength back. So touch wood been good for some time now so anyway sorry to, for a long story there but don't be sorry and by the fact that not story. one person has signed off of this call i think it's uh i think it's an incredible story sensei and also i appreciate your candor with it you know these are things that i may or may not be easy for some people to talk about it may or may not be easy for you to talk about well, one of the reasons i wrote the book was because i was tired of carrying the weight of that story and um i thought if, so <clears throat> when i was in there I would write letters and uh, the girlfriend, we had just broken up, but we were girlfriend, boyfriend. We lived together for eight years. She knew me more than anyone else. So I would write to her and she helped me actually. She got some things organized for me at home. Uh, I made her my, um, what do you call it? Attorney, uh, power of attorney. Mm -hmm. And um, so I would write to her and sometimes I'd write like 10, 15 page letters. I would tell her what this is, this is what's happening <clears throat> day to day. So it was a way of communicating with the outside world. <clears throat> so some years later, when I got back, um, she came to me one day and says, uh, here, you might want these one day. She gave me this big stack of letters mm. that I had written her. So when I decided finally, okay, I've carried this long enough, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a book. So we were able to take those letters, put them in chronological order, and all the detail uh, was in there. And it, uh, it made it possible to write that as it happened. Um, yeah. Uh, so writing it, I didn't write it to make money. I wrote it so that, again, um, following more of a native tradition, the sweat lodge is designed to, uh, it's a place where you can unload things you don't want to carry anymore. Mm -hmm. And when the doors open, the winds will take it away and you can be free of it. So by writing that story, I was able to pull it out of my heart and put it on paper with hope that somebody might read that and learn from my mistake because there is a moral to the story at the end uh, my yeah. conversation with Sensei Soroka when I got back um, so when the book, book was finally written and published and produced and when the book when they showed up I opened the first box I took one out I put it aside so this one's for my, my mother and then the second one I took out and I said this one's for me the rest, take it to chapters or wherever you're going to put them. <clears throat> so, I don't know, some months later, my wife and I were on a canoe trip in Algonquin Park. We we're right in the middle on a uh, big trout lake. So we were sitting around a nice fire one night. I went in the tent. I got the book and I brought it out and I put it right in the fire and I watched it burn. I said, now I'm free. Mm. So I took it from my heart into this book. Now I've released it to the universe. I do not have to carry this anymore. So I have no problem talking about this because I'm free of it. 
Makes sense. So, yeah. What's the name of that book, Sensei? Just people are going to watch. You should. Okay. Give, us, give us the title and yeah. It's called Detour on the Path. Good title. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Big detour. <laughs> but it got so, back on that. In fact, this dojo would not exist the way it does had I not been through that experience. Because what I realized through that experience is I've been put on this earth for a reason. So stop fucking around and get to it. And both feet in, fully committed, and here you are. That's how this. That's how how this came to be. Because, like I you say, you, you could rent some space somewhere, and you could put up some mirrors and so on, and uh, and that that would be great. And there's tons of dojos that are fantastic like that. But I wanted to be absolutely 100% committed. Mm. Yeah, financially, emotionally, spiritually, everything. So. That's uh, that's the reason why you were saying in the beginning about this dojo. Yeah. yeah. So the way we wind down our show, Sensei, is we start with Hanshi Legacy and we make our way down sort of through our ranks in our uh, in our hosting and we just sort of comment on our, on our time with you. And then the last word will go to you other than a little bit of housekeeping right after. Sensei Legacy? Oh, it was great meeting you the other day at, at, uh, at your you do there for... Uh, how, uh, House of Bricks, was it? Yellow House. Oh, Yellow Brick House. Yellow Brick House. Yeah. Uh, it was the first time I had really met you, I believe, and I was really impressed by um, your dojo. And now uh, even more impressed by yourself, by some of the things that you've overcome. Somebody would look at, at that as maybe um, a downfall, but uh, I look at it as getting back up. So there's a lot to learn from that. And I've never had really bad experiences like that, but I've had some. And uh, welcome back. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Sanchi. Sensei Suino. Sensei, thank you so much. There's, there's, there's so much that you spoke about that resonates with me. Uh, uh, from... from uh, uh, waking up four hours after a shoulder dislocation in extreme pain. <laughs> uh, I've been there, done that, don't want to do it again. No. I can relate. Um, and, and I want to thank you for you saying that the reason why people get a black belt, right? It's similar to getting a certificate for scuba or skydiving. You know, I've been doing martial arts for 53 years. I never thought of it that way. Uh, it, was a, it was a moment of clarity that you provided, you know, I've always thought of it was what was important about the training was how it changed you. And I've always sort of seen things through that lens. Uh, it never really occurred to me to think about it that way that so many people are just trying to achieve a certificate. Uh, not that I think they're right about that, but I just, I just never felt it before. So thank you for that. Um, well, your, your comment, you, I've been at it around the same amount of time. And, and I looked at it as, as very enriching and, and made it a lifestyle where not everybody who comes from maybe more privilege um, don't need this or that they haven't had the same sort of struggles or things to overcome. So it wasn't as profound for them. And not that, that one is wrong or right, but I've just realized that's our society today. Um, it's another achievement and a valid one. Fair enough. So because I used to get bent out of shape, I must be a shitty teacher because they're all leaving. Uh, and then I've realized, no, 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 not necessarily. Yeah. 
Well, it's interesting you say that about, you know, about maybe uh, more challenges in life. Uh, 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 you described yourself as coming from humble roots and you described your parents as, as simple people. And yet look what your life in the martial arts has enabled you to do, right? To travel the world, to meet people all over and, mm. and to listen to you speak, you know, someone as articulate and inspirational as you, uh, who attributes so much of who you are to the martial arts. That is just amazing. I just, uh, so thank you for the time you spent with us. You're welcome. Appreciate that. Thanks, Sensei. Sensei Dauphin? Yeah, Sensei Jones, you know, I, even more now, I always write these notes um, whenever we talk to somebody, just to prove to you that I have been listening and I've learned some things <laughs> from you. Um, you know, 14-year-old boy in 1969, so... You've dated yourself. We know your age now. You can never hide away from it, but I don't think you're trying to hide away from anything. Um, yeah. That you join because you're insecure. I like the idea. A topic that's come up often is this, you know, Hanchi Merriman's passed away now, but about him leaving one state to move to another state after six months of training because he wanted to do karate and that was the only place he could go. And when you were talking about hitchhiking all over like Toronto to get to York and get to these places, I don't think, I don't know how many students right now, like starting would be willing to hitchhike to the dojo or, or do that. So that's, that's interesting. Um, really cool that you got to live in Nakayama Sensei's dojo. That's super cool. Um, Chichosi Sensei saying that he's a family man. I like these little snippets. It allows you to start to, you know, close the gap in your mind about these instructors that you make things up in your mind because you want them to be that way, right? That I like that you said about Sensei Soroka, you put the politics aside and said that he could push people past where they thought they could go. I think that's awesome. Nakayama Sensei had a really calming era about him. I wouldn't, that's not something that I would have put in my mind, um, but I, I believe you. Uh, Really interesting to hear you say, like, always nervous to go to the JKA because there's blood on the floor every night, every day. But yet you went, you still kept going. Like, even though you were nervous, you kept sacking up and going. That's great. Um, just that whole, I got to think about the whole, like, you know, you can't be half Japanese and half Canadian. You got to pick a way and, and be that. And you can be in Japan too long. That's probably a lot of people on this call would never think about that because they romanticize it, right? They want to walk down the sleepy paths and, you know, train in somebody's backyard and you lived it. So your opinion is not an opinion. It's something different. Um, I like what you said about the, the belts and goal setting. And if you learn to achieve that goal as a sensei, like I like that thought about, and if you can achieve these belts, you can achieve other things in life. Like if you can set this goal, achieve this goal, then you can set other goals in work, in school, in relationships, in other places in life. I, I'm going to definitely be pulling that in. Um, I put this in exclamation marks. No, you did not pass with an exclamation <laughs> mark. I like that, right? Mm. Um, um, and if you don't like it, then you can go. I, yeah. uh, that philosophy resonates with me. You did not pass. If you don't like it, you can go. We're not rewarding mediocrity here. That's not what we're about. Um, uh, I also like that thought about, we've been talking a lot about rank and belts lately, but uh, 
the belt says what you're supposed to know, right? Like people should look at that belt and they should know that, okay, you're a yellow belt. You're supposed to know these things. You're a whatever, Dan, you're supposed to know these things. That's what the belt is for. I like that idea. Um, I like when you said, if your sphincter doesn't tighten, that's probably not the right dojo for you. That's a good one. I like that. Um, shut up and just do it. Keep your mouth shut and just train. Um, most of the really high level fighters like yourself, Sensei Legacy, Sensei Copeland, all said reverse punch. Mm -hmm. I like to take that away. Like that's the one in the bank, reverse punch. I obviously deeply love that you said you would want to train with Matsumura. I agree. I would probably nobody more. I'm training with the people I want to train with now, but if they weren't here and there was some other person, he'd be the one. Um, if you have no discipline, you will achieve nothing. I might get that tattooed on me somewhere. It just, yeah. that's, that's a good one. Uncompromising, uh, uncompromising life and lifestyle. Um, I was really sorry to hear about your wife and the things that your family are going through right now. If you need anything, we're there for you for sure. Uh, I might fight some people with socks, um, roll up some socks, pull those on and fight some people. They won't like it, but I might do that um, just to see what it was like. Right? Um, uh, you know, all the stuff that you talked about in prison, uh, Sensei Suino and I have the, the saying where we say, you know, you're not normal. Like I'll say to Sensei Suino, you're not normal. And he'll be like, Randy, you're not normal. And uh, definitely Sensei Jones, you're not normal, man. Like you're just not normal. And I mean that <laughs> as the highest compliment I can give a person. You're not oh, normal. Good. And I learned a ton tonight and thank you so much. And I know a lot of people learned a lot tonight. So Really grateful for your time. Oh, great. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it was a pleasure. Nice to chat to, you know, we all get going in our own little dojos and we're uh, sort of uh, feel like we're islands. Mm. So it's nice to be able to do this sort of thing. Mm. So I, I thank you very much for doing this uh, and, and letting others learn uh, through the process. Like we were saying earlier, earlier, uh, uh, myself, I learned more about karate in the bar than in the dojo. I learned mm -hmm. how to do it in the dojo. But like you say, riding in the back seat or sitting at the table as the youngest one listening to the conversations, that's when you really learn uh, learn about it. And uh, so, yeah, it's all good. So it's great. I appreciate it. Thanks, Sensei. And one little thing I just want to add, you know, first off, you're willing to die more than once in that place to help other people. You, your stories weren't about you getting yours. It was about helping other people not get something they may or may not have deserved. And that's huge. That's huge. Everybody thinks they do that, but who really knows until you're in the kind of situations you were in. And then the last thing is, you know, I'm pretty openly sober on this call and the group that helped me get sober has a, has a thing that says, no matter how far down the scale we've gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. And when you're talking about that and then how that lets you understand what you need to do and how you can help, I really relate and I really appreciate your time. Um, Sensei Dolphin, I'm going to throw it to you for our next two weeks to tell us what's going on. Next Thursday is uh, Sensei John Pearson, who not a lot of people might know, like they might not know him. He's one of Sensei Legacy's very best friends. He was there the very first day Sensei Legacy walked into the dojo and 
a lot of the stuff we talk about has when sense legacy tells me something and then I get to be around sense of Pearson, he corroborates it like independently, almost exactly the same way. So he's also a big fan of this show and just a big fan of uh, martial arts in general. And I'm, I love the guy and I'm super looking forward to chatting with him. I think we're going to have an awesome conversation with him next week. The week after that, we're going to do our host chat. I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> and the one thing I do want to mention is we've we've also started to do some uh, spin-off stuff, like little breakout things. And we did one with Sensei Copeland earlier this week. And I'm it's not live. Like people don't get to sign into it, but we're going to continue to do it. And I'm excited to hear what, what people think of it when we post it on YouTube and start sharing it around on Facebook. Thanks, Sensei. What a treat. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, if you're on any of our alternate platforms, smash that subscribe, hit that like button. And I am going to say an absolute heartfelt thank you to all the people who help run this show behind the scenes. Uh, I don't have the list in front of me, so I'm going to do my best. Justin Shea, Robert Shlemsky, Tori Feth, Andre Sedeshev, Alden Adair. Sensei Dofen, do you know if I'm missing anybody right now? I should commit this to memory. If I've missed your name and you've helped, I apologize. You know we dearly care for the time you spend helping us get the show on the air. It doesn't exist without you. And thanks, everybody, for watching. Same to you. Have a beautiful week. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Sensei Jones. Thanks, Sensei Jones. Bye, everybody. See you.